This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning. Frank Proctor here, the sous chef of the garden. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday morning. Us being Charlie Dobbin, our master gardener, and the unheard of but very necessary producer, Joel. I shouldn't say unheard of. Unheard of you this morning, Charlie. (laughs) I'm great, Franklin. But, you know, there's a definite feel of autumn in the air. Have you noticed that? Oh, you are absolutely right. You know, I checked out the temperature at uh, quarter to seven this morning. It was 13 degrees. Yikes. (laughs) Won't be long before we'll be mowing the fallen leaves to make some mulch for the flower beds and all, right? Yeah, and I guess it's worth noting for people that are listening to the show right now, we've pre-recorded the show back earlier in the week on Tuesday morning. So it, when they're listening to it on Saturday, it might actually be slightly different in terms of temperatures. I haven't stayed up on top of that. But, you know, that kind of <clears throat> segues nicely into the fact that we've got some good news to share this morning. All things being equal, we just might be in the studio live for next Saturday's show. Yes, and I understand that they're drawing up rules for studio, proper studio etiquette during these strange times. Yeah, so while it's not a definitive come on back, it's a very positive sign. So with that in mind, maybe um, you don't need to email me quite as many emails. (laughs) I know we've certainly (laughs) asked for them over the last several weeks and months, but um, I've got, I think I'm in good shape for next week's show in case we are doing a pre-recording again. Um, And by the way, Frankie, thanks for sending me a copy of that very nice letter you received from the folks of the Ontario Horticultural Society. Yes, indeed. And a good morning to both President Kathy Smith and VP Charles Freeman. Now, they mention in that note, with COVID-19 in mind, overall, there are 276 societies or clubs with a 27,000-plus membership count are doing pretty good, all things considered. Yeah, high fives to them. Then in response to all the negatives... Many clubs found new and innovative ways to carry on during these troubled times. They held virtual plant sales with curbside pickup and a whole bunch of other activities. Yeah, they found safe ways to get together to clean gardens and meet the public at plant sales. And you know, Frank, it's important to acknowledge that horticultural societies have always done those tedious tasks like cleaning and maintaining municipal gardens, looking after senior residences, and holding a myriad of activities, all of which help their respective communities look better. And they ask a little favor, which they, uh, well, they have our ear. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I saw that, P.S. And the bottom of their note, if you, okay, it's in quotes, if you could, Charlie and Frank, ask folks to check GardenOntario.org to see how the OHA has adjusted so well to the new normal and consider joining. That's GardenOntario.org. Dot org. Our pleasure to do that. Now, Charlie, I have to ask you about your 
tomato harvest along with the ongoing battle <laughs> with the hornworms. How's that going? Oh, gosh. It has turned out to be a perfect growing season for tomatoes. I mean, all that heat and sun and warmth. Now that we've had some rain, the tomatoes are super happy. But in my small little garden, the voracious tomato hornworms are multiplying and growing so fast I can barely keep up with the picking and drowning of them that I have to do on a daily basis. Oh, gee, just looking again into the picture you send me sends shivers up my spine. Uh, well, we mentioned the approach of Paul. What should folks be thinking about right now, Charlie? Well, you know what I think about right now? It's time to start planning for planting fall bulbs that will bloom in the spring give us all the beautiful color and beauty early in the season when you know everything is still brown and even the lawns aren't green and remember as well early bulbs early blooming bulbs support the pollinators when it gets warm early and all the little insects start to wake up and nothing's flowering those crocuses and snowdrops are very very important and how's that little herb garden you started in your new backyard? <laughs> well, I do keep harvesting herbs. I've already cut my basil plants down three times, made pesto, and frozen it. Mm-mm, pesto. I can already taste that on the top of a pile of a spaghetti dinner. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save you some. Okay. Oh, and it's also... Okay, so I think we'll better um, head off for our first break, Frankie. You bet, yeah. A lot of folks are going to be busy in the first while. I just got the jog in my earphones here from our producer Joel. Time for that first break and Charlie and I will return in moments here on Zoomer Radio. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, here we are back at the Garden Show. Charlie Dovin and uh, yours truly, Frank Proctor. Have a note here from Aldina Moreira, who says, uh, Hi, Charlie and Frank. I was wondering what the problem could be from all the cosmos I started that did not bloom. There were big, beautiful plants from seeds I'd saved from last year, and they were supposed to be of a, a shorter type. I have the older tall ones in my garden for many years. They always flower. I had put the seedlings in different places, and none flowered. I was so frustrated, I pulled them all out. I was so disappointed. Your reply is always appreciated. I'll be listening religiously hmm. from Eldina. Uh, okay, so that's a bit of a, I'm not sure. The um, When I first read this question, I was thinking that the seeds didn't germinate, but clearly they did grow. They just hadn't flowered yet. Uh, remember that if it's a cold, wet spring or cold, wet early summer, uh, we don't get things like cosmos blooming very quickly. They like the dry heat. So maybe if you'd let, left those little plants in place, they might have ultimately flowered uh, because I, I'm not exactly sure why they wouldn't have, have flowered. If they grew, they, they should flower. Uh, I, but keep in mind, when we plant from seed, not all seeds will grow because seeds that get a little bit old, like over a year old in the case of Cosmos, you have very poor germination. So it's always better to uh, buy new ones or, you know, like you said, you have Cosmos that seeds itself all over your garden. So you rely on those and that's great. But um, yeah, make sure that nice fresh seed when you're growing from seed and be patient. <laughs> okay. All righty. Next note in, uh, from Simon in Windsor. 
Hi, Charlie and Frank. Thanks for the great show. Charlie, I was hoping you'd have some advice for a problem with my black-eyed Susans. Now, every year, they get black spots all over the leaves. The plants still seem to flower and do okay, but the green foliage is unsightly. I have several beds in other locations that have the same problem. I recently renovated a bed that was full of these black-eyed Susans. It was overtaken with weeds, so I dug everything out and planted the black-eyed Susans temporarily in pots. Now, I was planning on replanting these in the bed in the fall when the weather cools down. Given that I have a fresh start, do you have any suggestions? Is there any way I can treat these black spots organically? Are there different varieties that may be less susceptible? And should I give up and switch to a different plant instead? And they attached some pictures of the plants in pots in one of the untouched beds. That's from Simon in Windsor. Yeah, thank you for your note. So black-eyed Susans, just for those who aren't necessarily familiar with the plant, is properly called Rudbeckia. And it's a very tough, <coughs> excuse me, tough prairie plant. So it's a it's a really reliable plant and it's something that we will grow so easily get you start with one plant and they'll often reseed themselves on the property and before you know it you have quite a a large mass of black-eyed susans or rudbeckia now those black spots are not that uncommon uh it's likely it's commonly just called a leaf spot it's likely a septoria leaf spot which is a fungus very common on tomatoes um it does look like small dark brown lesions that grow on the leaves up to a quarter inch wide throughout the entire summer. <clears throat> the lesions can be round, they can be angular, they usually start on the lower leaves uh, and, and sort of work their way up the plant. But keep in mind that this leaf spot is it's not very pretty, uh, brown and black spots on your leaves, is really a cosmetic issue. It's more an aesthetics that, that you're not liking the look of it. The plants are so tough, they, they just live through this disease. They have, they'll just keep on blooming and doing their thing. So what are you going to do to try and avoid it in the future? Because with fungal diseases, you cannot eradicate a fungal disease. You must prevent it. Uh, so what are you going to do to prevent it? Well, you're going to realize that the spores over winter uh, on plant material in the ground. So you got to be back to our good garden hygiene. You're going to clear those beds, remove all that foliage as soon as frost has knocked it down. Recognize that as the new growth starts in the spring, if there's spores still available in the ground, they'll often reinfect the new foliage in the spring. So things to do uncrowd your plants. Crowded plants will always have bigger issues with fungal diseases. Avoid overhead watering, so avoid wet foliage. Uh, and of course, you can't do much about high humidity, but high humidity it, it contributes to fungal diseases. So if at the end of the day, you say, no, I want my black-eyed Susans and I want them to be perfect, then you're going to have to start treating with a fungicide early in the spring. Um, a copper-based copper fungicide, there's one called Bordeaux mixture, B-O-R-D. D-O, that is a powder that you mix with water, and you would start using that in the early spring, and you'll use it consistently to prevent the disease. And of course, you'll know it's time to spray when there's rain in the forecast or the humidity is getting high, then you will spray prior to the rain and you'll spray after the rain. Uh, and never spray, obviously, when it's hot. Never spray when the sun is shining on plants. And you could try keeping them perfect that way. That's that's my best suggestion. Or, or just 
space them out a bit more and, and remove leaves if they bother you. Because you know what? They are tough plants. You can take those leaves off with the brown spots and the plants look pretty good. All right. Okay. All righty. Uh, oh, Charlie, we're going to jump to question number four uh, because of timing issues here. Uh, from Karen in Oakville, I seeded some nasturtiums back in May, both in pots, one in full sun, the other in more shade than sun. Neither have yet bloomed. Any idea why? So this is a classic. The reason why, Karen, is because you love them too much. So start ignoring them. Just ignore them. No water, no fertilizer. Don't even look at them and they'll start blooming. Uh, get them out in the sun, get them into a hot sunny location and, and ignore them. Nasturtiums, plant them in gravel, plant them, you know, just treat them very poorly and they'll bloom like crazy. And that's the joy of nasturtiums. They do not require any care at all. Okay. And uh, folks, as a little bit of a teaser, what do you think of our theme song that starts the show? <laughs> Wait till you hear what one listener thinks about it in just a couple of moments here on The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, let's uh, get going with our next email, as I promised. This is kind of an entertaining one that I found. Anyway, Kate in Mississauga says... I have a large area of my garden that is now largely shaded by an old cherry tree where there is currently a very large hosta, some Solomon seal, and a bit of anemone, whatever that is. <laughs> what other, uh, oh, anemone, okay. What other perennial will grow in shade that has color and not too short in its blooming period as most perennials are? And, oh, and by the way, as I've been listening since you went on the air, it would be a breath of fresh air if you changed your theme song. Have to, and they always found it rather, hmm, can't think of the word. Out of date? Corny? <laughs> Thank you for giving me a snicker there, Kate and Mrs. Saga. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I, out of date. I mean, I think we're pretty cutting edge, you and I. But anyway, yeah, thanks, Kate. Um, so here's the scoop on perennials that bloom in what we would consider fairly shady conditions. Because remember, not much is happy at all in deep shade in terms of blooming. You'll notice that I'm going to list a few uh, plants right now, and you're going to notice that a lot of them bloom in the spring. And that's because in the spring, your cherry tree will not have a lot of leaves on it. And you'll get, that'll be your most sunny season in the garden. And most of the, the plants that will survive and thrive in a fairly shady or low light situation through the entire growing season will do their flowering early in the season when the sun is at its max. Um, and then just going back to what we said at the very top of the show is, remember bulbs. Plant bulbs this fall because, again, no leaves on your cherry tree, lots of sun in the spring, get that spring color happening, and then the bulbs, of course, disappear and other plants like your hosta will come up and cover them. Um, um, but but just some some uh, as well. The other things to keep in mind is very few perennials bloom for very long. You're lucky to get a week to two weeks out of most perennials. There's the odd exception uh, when it comes to longer bloom time. Um, so that's when we'll rely often on uh, plants with attractive leaves. So even when they're not blooming, the leaves still look great. So a couple of examples, ajuga, uh, also known as bugleweed, has very, comes in different colored leaves. Um, think of ferns. Of course, they're not going to bloom, but they've got a lovely texture in the garden. Um, lamium is a, a low-growing perennial with silver. It's 
uh, dead nettle, I think is the common name on that. Um, Tiarella and Hookera, both of them, great looking leaves, flowers more midsummer rather than spring. Um, and that geranium, perennial geranium can grow in fairly low light and will bloom with an extensive bloom period, actually almost all summer if you get down there and do the deadheading. Uh, one of my favorites that's got, looks a bit like a Jurassic Park kind of a perennial is, uh, Rogersia. So Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R-S-I-A, Rogersia, amazing plant, really, really phenomenal flower, but amazing leaves so and it, it would do well but all these plants are going to want a pretty organic soil so you get some good um compost manure or compost into your soil before you start planting any of these particularly around the roots of a big old tree all right okay uh maureen darian in uh, st Catharines writes hello charlie and norm <laughs> hey, uh, so, so little frankie proctor norm not being here will answer for him and uh, read the note <laughs> Uh, we have we have a ten year old clematis that has uh, never been trimmed. It has large white flowers that come early in the season. Sometimes we get a smaller second set of flowers. Now each year, I decide that this is the year I'll prune or trim it, but I've been nervous to lose that beautiful show we get every year. As a regular listener to your show, I realize I should have cut it back directly after blooming. My question is, cut it right down to the ground now, a month and a uh, after blooms finish or wait until fall. I'll understand I'll forfeit next week's, uh, next year's flowers, but I'll do any other damage by cutting it, or pardon me, will I do any other damage by cutting it back now? The plant is at least four feet wide and falling down in itself. Most of it dead wood inside. Mm. Mm. And that's from St. Catharines. Yeah. So Maureen, um, it's the crazy thing about clematis is there's so many different species of clematis that bloom at different times and as a result are pruned at different times. <clears throat> the fact that you said it blooms in the early, early in the season and then a second set of flowers often shows up makes me think that you have a, what's called a clematis montana. So, uh, that species being a montana clematis or clematis. <clears throat> it's originally from the Himalayas. Uh, it's a very vigorous plant. Um, uh, and probably that's why it's the size that it is because it, it really can grow and, and do some amazing cover of ugly things. If anybody's got a rusty old garage, they don't want to look at, just plant a, a montana clematis and that garage will disappear. So here's what you should do. Two options. One is wait till next spring, wait till that first flush of flowers happens, and then get out there with your pruners and cut out the dead or the weak stems right after it flowers, which I think would be hard to do because you've got so much dead in behind and you've got that live probably on the outside that you just end up getting frustrated trying to get all that dead stuff out. So what is probably preferable is leave it alone for the winter in early spring, uh, early spring as in the soil, the ground is thawing, the birds are singing, it's starting to warm up, life is starting to show up in all of our plants, buds are swelling at that point. Nice dry day, get out your pruners and cut the whole thing down to one meter tall. Everything goes down to one meter tall. And you might at that point also recognize some of the dead stuff and be able to take that out right at, at ground level. Um, and then let the whole thing grow up after that and enjoy what you get. You will get blooms next year. You probably won't get early ones, but you will get later blooms by doing that. All right. Note from MJ Harnack that I found really interesting. And uh, let me read it to you, Charlie. 
said, hi, Charlie, I was listening to your show and heard you mention your rock pile and were speculating regarding its origin. Well, I grew up on a dairy farm on the Puss Lynch Lake Road in Wellington County between Cambridge and Guelph. Every spring, one of our routine chores for maintenance was what we lovingly today, okay, not so lovingly, referred to as picking stones. And this involved walking the fields beside the tractor, pulling the wagon, and picking up every sizable stone or rock that had been heaved up by the frost that spring, so they'd not be inadvertently picked up by and damaged the farm equipment when uh, implements when taking off the crops. When the wagon was full, we'd go to the edge or the side of the field and throw off the rocks, creating a sizable rocks or stone pile. We'd continue in grid-like pattern until all rocks larger than a baseball uh, were removed. This was back in the day when plowing was commonplace and would contribute to heaving up the rocks. These days, I believe no-till is the preferred method, so this may no longer be needed in soils or fields where rocks are more plentiful. That was kind of interesting, huh? Maybe that's where your uh, your pile came from. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, I, what, what happened here, too, is that the whoever farmed this land many years ago took some of those rocks, and because we have a lot of flat... Um, set, was formed by a sedimentary rock, so it's like uh, limestone, but it's like a, a shale, so it's a very... Oh, it's like big flagstones almost, but it, it's, you know, comes up out of the ground. Um, there is a dry, there's a lot of dry stone walls in this neck of the woods because it's very easy to build, to layer all those dry, the, the flat rocks up like that. So um, I, I'm, it is possible that, yes, some of those came from the farmer doing the harvesting in the spring of those, the, the growing rocks thing that for sure happens here. But um, yeah, it's kind of amazing. I don't know if you can hear in the background, but Bell Canada has decided that us rural folk need faster uh, internet. And they are currently installing a fiber optic cable on my, my street, on my property. And of course, they can't tunnel through this land. They are using, believe it or not, jackhammers to go through the rock wow. in my front yard to make a trench to lay in the optical cable. So, I mean, and it's a day and a half just getting across the front of my property with a jackhammer, like on a big machine. It's kind of crazy. So, yeah, this is rock country. <laughs> wow. Kind of noisy, too, I'd suspect. Yeah, it is. I was wondering if maybe you could hear it in the background. <laughs> no, not not so far. Not to me, anyway. Uh, okay. Now, here's a neat note from Rosemary Bowman. So, hi, Charlie. I'm trying to find Werner's recipe for the tomato plants. I can't find your hints. Say hello to Frank. Take care and stay safe. Ciao for now, Rosemary Bowman. Now, I thought she was, I thought it was fairly easy. So, I went online mm -hmm. and uh, just uh, Googled charliedobbin.com. That took yeah. me to Garden Solutions yeah. by uh, Charlie. And uh, there's a little uh, at the top of that particular uh, page, it's a web yeah, it's a, yeah. four, four little lines. So you punch on there, and you'll see the tips come right up there. Yeah. So is that is that pretty well the easiest way to source yeah, that? That's the easiest way because it's written right there. It's it, it's on my website, so charliedobbin.com. Tips is where uh, we've kind of amalgamated all some of the, so many of the great recipes that people have sent yeah. us. And so Warner's special tomato recipe is there under tips at charliedobbin.com. Thanks, Frank. Okie dokie. Uh, here's a note from Vera uh, Kern, and she sent you a picture. She says, I forget the name of this wild Ontario flower that grows about five feet tall. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I know it's funny. It's, it's oh, 
So I should know what this is. <laughs> so I looked up Heliopsis. I looked up Helianthemum, which are all kind of sunflowery type plants, which is what this looks like. I've seen this plant so many places over the years. But at the end of the day, I think it's a Coryopsis. So it's uh, it's um, Coryopsis triptiris, I think, T R I P. T-E-R-I-S. I think that's what it is. If that's not right, Vera, or if anybody else has a better idea of what it is, please feel free to let me know. Alrighty. Uh, good morning, Charlie. Attached is a pretty bush with pink flowers, which I bought about three years ago as a small something or other, golly, with these pink bells. It's very pretty and getting bigger. I'm sure I shouldn't trim it. Can you please tell me what it's called and how I can properly cut it back <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your show, Linda. And I looked at the flowers, and they are beautiful. They are beautiful. And guess who loves those flowers? Hummingbirds. Oh, really? Because yeah, ah. that is a shrub called Wegela. So W-E-I-G-E-L-A. Wegela. Very, very, um, again, kind of like a black-eyed Susan. It's just one of those plants. It's very reliable. It's very tough. Uh, handles all kinds of conditions, soil kinds, <clears throat> full sun, part sun, neglect, any of that. And this plant just keeps on growing and keeps on flowering. And it's a bit unusual too because it will bloom early in the season and then it'll often, as Linda points out, start putting out some more blooms sort of midsummer. So it's it's kind of a, a nice plant. Now it can get quite large, uh, depending on what variety you've got. They've done a lot of breeding on the Wajulas and there's lots of different ones out there now with simple green leaves, with purple leaves, with variegated leaves, with red flowers and pink flowers. So lots and lots of choices. Uh, what I would do in your case, since you've only had this for three years, right after it flowers every year twice a year pretty much cut back the shoots which have those faded blooms on them right after they flower and and that's a just an, an excellent way to keep it fresh looking and keep new buds forming and keep new flowers coming so you're just going to have to stay on top of it you've got to go in there after that first big flush of blooms and and cut back at that point and then be prepared to do a little more cutting later in the season okay uh you might note that we're not uh, plugging the fact that we need your emails again this week because hopefully, all fingers crossed and all things being equal, we might be in the studio for the next show uh, of The Garden Show here on Zuma Radio. Fingers crossed. We'll be back in a moment. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Uh, Charlie, I was just thinking, you know, we had a situation this morning of, of mentioning that there's a possibility of our show going live uh, next week from the studio. However, uh, with the thought of accepting no emails at all, <laughs> let's make a little bit of a correction here. You had a darn good idea. Well, I was just thinking that just in case we aren't in the studio, we still will want, you know, great questions for next week's show if we're doing as we've been doing since March, this pre-recording idea. Um, so that's why I thought, you know what, if people don't would like to continue to send some email for the next little while, we can always, if we're live in the studio, I can read email live, right? We don't need to just do email pre-recorded. So that's my thinking is maybe uh, since you know my email address better than I do, maybe you could give my email address and and then that way we, we can have sort of the option for next week. Yeah, very good. Okay, here's Charlie's email, 
dot Dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. Now, on to our uh, emails we're reading this morning. Patrick <laughs> Conception in Scarborough writes, Good morning, Charlie. I uh, listen to your show every Saturday. I love gardening, and I've learned a lot from listening to you. I've sent a picture of this plant. It has pretty blue flowers. Can you tell me its name? Patrick <laughs> in Scarborough. Yes, indeed, I can. That's a commonly called a Carpathian bellflower. Uh, the proper name is Campanula carpatica. So it is a, it's a lovely little plant, actually. It's a easy to grow. It's a low mounded perennial plant with these bell shaped flowers that look up at the sky usually, but very beautiful blue. And often it's hard to get great blue flowers in, in the garden. There's so many pinks and reds and whites, but blues can, can be a bit of a challenge. So, um, Campanula carpatica. And it always makes me smile too, because way back in my white rose retail days, I just remember a shopper coming in saying, I'm looking for, um, bluebells. And I'm like, you, like, there's about 20 different plants out there that are called bluebells commonly. So I'm like, so which bluebells are you looking for? And this person was like, well, you know, just a plant with bluebells. I was like, okay, okay. Well, there's this one and this one and this one and this one. Come on. Um, which is why it's so important to know your proper names. You know, bluebells is a great common name, but bluebells also, like I said, could be 20 different plants. So Campanula Carpatica. It's like a little carpet, a companion that grows like a carpet. All right. Oh, I want to pass along a very nice letter uh, you received here. Uh, Linda in Milton writes, my apologies for the delay in this sincere letter of thanks. I'm writing to thank Zoomer Radio and Charlie Dobbin for responding to my letter. It was read on the July 4th show, I believe. And since that time, I've cultivated my legacy, Begonia, and it's thriving. I will have to be honest, I was a little disappointed it was only a begonia, as I've never seen one quite like it. However, I still love it, and thanks to your advice, it is now thriving. And she adds here, I have always enjoyed Zoomer Radio, and I'm now a fan of the Garden Show, and listen whenever I can. She thank you, Lynn, very much. Yeah, appreciate it. Alrighty, a note from Martin Silver here. Good morning, Charlie. I enjoy listening to your show on my Saturday morning walks. Oh, isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. um, I moved into a new home at Swan Lake Village in Markham just under a year ago. We inherited a lovely Japanese maple tree, which sits at the front of our house. According to the records that we assumed, it was planted in 2015. Now, it faces west and gets sun from approximately noon till dusk. I've just noticed that our tree has developed these brown spots and patches, and I wonder what this is, and should we have any concerns? The tree looks very healthy, and the leaves in the lower uh, shelf of the plant are green rather than red. A neighbor said there might be something called galls, or I thought it looked like mites. Uh, uh, any thoughts what it would be? Um, and Oh, he throws a second question here. <laughs> As the tree was planted so close to our front window, I did prune the plant once already. I'd like to keep it under control and have it not get unruly. Is this okay to do, and when's the best time to prune this type of tree? Best regards, Martin Silver uh, calling in, or writing in. From Markham. Okay, Japanese maple trees with uh, leaves that look a little sketchy. It's not mites, it's not galls, it's nothing scary at all. What it is is it's called leaf scorch. And why do you have leaf scorch on your Japanese maple? Because as you said in your note, it faces west and it gets sun 
hot, hot afternoon sun from approximately noon until dusk. So that is a very harsh sun, that afternoon sun. Um, unfortunately, uh, too bad your house didn't face the other way. Uh, an eastern morning sun is a, is a gentler sun, and a Japanese maple generally does better uh, in terms of its leaf condition, particularly after such a hot summer. I mean, this summer was just crazy hot, crazy dry, but yet I've still seen leaf scorch on Japanese maples even when it hasn't been this hot and this dry. So that's just something to keep in mind. There's really nothing you're going to be able to do. I guess if your front yard is big enough, perhaps you could consider planting a small tree, you know, 10 feet away, 12 feet away, whatever, out on that facing west that will grow up and give some shade to the front of your house and to that Japanese maple. And that Japanese maple would be happier if it was getting a little more shade. So there's really nothing you can do about that. Um, Now, but when to prune it? He sent a picture along. It does look healthy. It does look, you know, certainly fat and juicy. So here's what you got to do. <clears throat> Late winter, so next year in February, March, or early spring, get out your pruners on a nice dry day. At that point, you're going to look for anything dead, and it's very obvious what's dead because the bark color is different on the dead wood. And you'll take out fine, any little fine stems that are obstructing the skeleton or the framework of that plant. A good, a well-pruned Japanese maple is a piece of art. It's it's sculpture, and you need to be able to see the the stem, the trunk, the branching of the tree, and the leaves are just kind of a filigree around sort of dressing up the the skeleton of the plant. Right now, what you've got going on is a whole bunch of little twiggy growth inside, little small twigs, little branches, and it just looks like a big poodle. So it's going to be a a certain amount of very specifically getting in there and thinning out the inside of that tree to expose uh, what's sort of the beauty of the framework. So the small twigs, anything that's rubbing together, branches that are rubbing together need to come out. And you'll, like I said, you're going to do all this late winter or early spring. And, and what I would do is, you know, take your time, dry, sunny day, uh, be out there. Remember, step back, step over to the neighbors, step across the road. Uh, and yes, you've got to also keep in mind that it's, you don't want it hitting the house. So the whole plant is going to have to be brought down because every year it's going to grow a good six inches or so. So you got to bring it down to the point where it's not going to be hitting your house by next August because you don't want to be pruning then. Okay. Uh, Charlie, as we record this show last Tuesday morning, uh, I'm looking at my watch. It's now 10 minutes after 10. But when I get up at 645 this morning and looked out the window, there is that egret uh, right across the pond, directly across the pond from uh, our log cabin here. And when uh, earlier this morning uh, looked out, there were about 40 to 50 Canada geese uh, who had landed for a brief stay, and they've you they've hope. taken off. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and our swans uh, have been uh, up and down the shoreline. Last night we had a devil of a time getting them away from the front uh, of the cabin here because they, to be very honest, they crap all over the place. And oh god. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's no fun to deal with that part of it. However, they they are beautiful. <laughs> anyway, just thought I'd throw that in for what it's worth. Boy. Yeah. The conservation area, the Shirley and Frank conservation area. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have to take our Bird break. Sanctuary. Yeah, we have to take our break right now. I'm encroaching on the show. So uh, we'll be back in just moments here on The Garden Show.
This is Zuma Radio Toronto. CFZM FM and CFZM AM. Owned and operated by MZ Media Incorporated. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. I have here a note from uh, Leonora Benjami, who writes, Good morning, Charlie. I had a peony which was covered in powdery mildew. It was planted in full sun, close to a dwarf blue spruce. Now, I dug it up, removed all the leaves from the plant and any on the surrounding area and put them in the garbage. I washed all the roots in a mixture of baking soda and water and have replanted it in a completely different location. I'm hoping it'll come back next year. My question is, can I now plant a hydrangea in the area from which I removed the peony? And if I can, when would be the best time to do so? Leonora. Thank you, Leonora. Okay, good question. Um, Also interesting treatment on the peony. Um, The thing, just to, to go back on the peony for a minute, the conditions that are favorable for the growth of powdery mildew on peonies include high humidity, which we can't control, uh, shade, high level of shade, which we can control, wet foliage, so f- plants that are watered with a hose where the leaves get wet, and poor air circulation. So, and this is exactly the same. Powdery mildew is a very similar kind of a fungal disease as the um, black-eyed Susan question that we covered earlier in the show. So avoiding those conditions, high humidity, which I said you can't avoid, but the, the shade, the wet foliage, the poor air circulation, all those things we can can avoid and we can lower our incidence of fungal diseases by by avoiding those conditions. So fungicide can be used to prevent fungal diseases like powdery mildew. Um, But however, you know, Leonore has already dealt with moving the peony out. She's hopefully now put it into an area with good sun, good air. Uh, She's going to avoid getting it wet and it's going to do well next year. Putting hydrangea into that spot, I don't know exactly the sun location, sun amount, the exposure she's got going on there, but hydrangeas, generally speaking, are not susceptible to powdery mildew, so it might just be a good choice to, to put into that area. Um, if it is a full sun location, then stick with a PG-type hydrangea, would be my suggestion. If it's part sun, then uh, stick more with a mop head-type hydrangea, like an Annabelle hydrangea. So yeah, but I wouldn't worry about fungal disease in, in that area just because hydrangeas don't don't get fungal diseases. When to plant? Coming up, we're getting into late August, September. Absolutely optimal time to be planting, transplanting, uh, rejuvenating our lawns that have suffered this summer. Uh, this uh, The soil is nice and warm as the we get into the cooler days of calm, of fall. But we, uh, we've got the real perfect conditions because the soil is so nice and warm. We've got some rain happening now. So it's an excellent time to be planting or transplanting. Charlie, we have a note here from Yvonne, and I must admit it contains several questions. But uh, due to the fact that I think we might have time for you to answer darn near every one of them, uh, <laughs> here we go. Hello, Charlie. I'm a longtime listener to your garden show. What do you recommend as a good time to transplant rows of Sharon? Mine are two to five feet high. Also, how and when is a good time to trim or prune a Japanese maple? It's about five feet high and sprawling out 
about a seven foot diameter. I would like it to be thicker and more full looking. And finally, what is happening to the monarch population? In the last two years, I've had around 50 cocoons this year, none. Best regards, Yvonne. Rose of Sharon, when is a good time to transplant Rose of Sharon? You can transplant Rose of Sharon in spring or fall. The disadvantage of transplanting in the fall, of course, is that's going to impact your flowers. Rose of Sharon is a late blooming flowering shrub. And so uh, generally when a plant is flowering at that time of year, we just like, um, yeah, we, we transplant opposite to when the flowering takes place. So to maximize blooms, you would transplant in the spring, um, but you can transplant in the fall and you just won't get as many blooms that year. Um, good time to trim or prune a Japanese maple. Okay, so that was what I was just talking about uh, two or three questions ago uh, for Martin Silver and his Japanese maple. Uh, pruning late winter or early spring, removing dead wood, thinning. Now, uh, Yvonne says she wants her Japanese maple to be thicker and more full looking. You know, it's too bad you've got a Japanese maple because Japanese maples shouldn't be thick and full looking. They should be very sculptural and very elegant. Uh, if you want something thick and full looking, get a wajila or a, uh, something that you can really just give it a, a poodle, like give, shear it, right? Shearing a plant makes it thick and full and round. People do that to lilac sometimes. They, there's lots of people shearing lots of shrubbery. I would avoid doing that to a Japanese maple, but you can. I mean, if you want to, if you want it to be thick and whatever, you can always shear it and it'll just be a big mass of leaves. And um, But it, it shouldn't. It should really be something where you see the, the structure of it. Um, and the monarchs. I know, it's a crazy thing about the monarchs. Um, I've seen a lot. How about you, Frank? Have you seen many butterflies at your place? You know, we haven't. Uh, we I haven't. didn't realize it right now, but you're absolutely right. I. I haven't noticed any. Well, so where I live now, and I'm new in this neighborhood, I have seen a lot of butterflies. But this question from Yvonne got me thinking, and I, I went, and of course, there's really interesting stuff on the web, including um, an organization called Monarch Watch dot org and they do updates they have a blog they're sort of constantly providing information on where the monarchs are so remember like the east coast where we live the monarchs go to mexico for the for the winter and on the west coast they go to southern california um but what what i am seeing which of course is Part of the sad part is that the population decrease is attributable to poor weather conditions during the spring and fall migration last year. But over the long term, monarchs have lost an estimated 165 million acres of breeding habitat to herbicide spraying and development. So that's that's the really sort of the, the sad part about monarchs. So we're all doing our best to support pollinators, butterflies, l all the living creatures. Yeah, you bet. You know, uh, Charlie, at the top of the show, we uh, talked a little bit, or you did, about some of the things to look forward to, to uh, chores to do as we approach <laughs> fall. Uh, maybe you could uh, enlarge that a little bit for me. Well, here's one final tip. The um, And it's not a chore. So you have some favorite plants, some coleus, for example, perhaps, or geraniums that have been really pretty this this past season. Now is the time to get out there and take some cuttings. Take some little two to four inch cuttings of some of your favorite annuals, get them rooted up, enjoy them in the house all winter, and you're ready to go next spring with stuff that you already know you love. So I would recommend and everybody consider doing that if they can. Excellent. Okay, you know, uh, maybe next week 
will be in the studio. But just in mm. case, folks, keep the emails coming to Charlie. And here's her address. Charlie Dobbin at C. Dobbin, D O B B I N, at mzmedia.com. And gosh, we're fresh out of time. Thanks, Frank. Couldn't do any of this without you and, and Joel, who's on holidays. What a, what a charming guy he is. <laughs> Thanks for your great questions, everybody. See you again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.